People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among the industry leaders, and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. Rebecca Rocky is an economist and the global head of forecasting at commercial real estate brokerage and advisory firm Cushman & Wakefield. In her role, she studies how economies, demographics, financial markets, and commercial real estate interact, both at the macro and micro level. Today's conversation covers some of the recent changes the Biden administration enacted with its first phase of the Build Back Better bill. Its impact on commercial real estate is not insignificant, and it promises to bring positive change throughout the industry. Rebecca's perspectives will help us understand the timing of this bill, how different categories of the bill will help impact the industry, and we'll even touch on the dreaded I-word, inflation. Welcome to the pod, Rebecca. Rebecca, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Where do we find you today? Where Where are you? I am in Northern Virginia, outside of D.C., preparing to uh, travel to Pennsylvania for the holidays. Okay, all right. Well, be safe. Take care. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a crazy world out there these days. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your team, just sort of as an introduction, kind of by way of... Uh, you know, a little bit of an overview of sort of, you know, where you are um, and, you know, the, you know, windy road that sort of got you to to the role that you play today at Cushman and Wakefield. Sure. It was certainly a, a long and windy road. Um, I am an economist by training and background and am currently our head of economic analysis and forecasting, which really is a, a nice umbrella term that captures a lot of different kinds of analysis that are germane to the commercial real estate world. Um, certainly, we do a lot of forecasting, but we also look at evolving topics that are top of mind from things like, um, you know, the policy response to the coronavirus pandemic, um, to inflation and uh, other developments such as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, and so we produce just, you know, thought leadership, we engage with clients, we um, present and talk to, to the media as well. Um, and so it's really a, a, a pretty dynamic role, I would say. Um, and my team, you know, is amazing. They support me on the forecasting side. I have people who really support on the data side and then, um, you know, sort of generalists who are economists like myself as well. Yeah, and you work with essentially all of your offices around the country, around the world. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that is right. So I, I was more America's focused, and you know, as as our company has gone through its journey um, since I joined, I, I joined as when the firm was Cassidy Turley, which 
then became DTZ, and then yeah, of course Cushman yeah. and Wakefield. Long time ago, wow! And, that's a that's a yeah, <laughs> that's a blast yeah. from the past. <laughs> it is, um, and it's it, it's really kind of wild. But um, you know, my role has evolved as well, and so it was it was sort of right before the pandemic where I really started to step into more of a global role. Um, and you know, what a time to be doing that for sure. Sure, sure, sure. So we, uh, connected with you guys, um, as a result of some research that you guys have done and sort of analysis on, um, some of the latest, um, you know, maybe the best way to describe it would be, um, you know, policy changes around, uh, build back better. Right. And um, maybe as kind of a way to, you know, level set our conversation, it would be good to just provide sort of a little bit of a primer in terms of, you know, what, 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 what this entails, right? And sort of how, how your analysis evolved. Yeah. So, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, there has been a lot of different policies that have gone through the Congress. Most recently, um, out of the Build Back Better agenda, we saw the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act actually get passed into law. So we recently did a report on that element of the Build Back Better agenda. And that's a little bit different than the package that is currently up for debate, um, which is tied more to some social spending programs and, and climate change programs that were also part of that Build Back Better agenda, but just not part of the bill that actually made it through in the month of November. Yeah, and that's a that's an important dis- distinction to make because there there are uh, a number of benefits sort of for the commercial real estate industry, as as we'll talk here shortly, that were part of that. Right. So, uh, help us kind of navigate through through that, maybe through you know a you know number of categories that you know you would you would classify some of some of these uh, policy changes. Sure. So in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, this was actually signed into law on on November 15th by President Biden. Um, This was really focused on physical infrastructure and infrastructure of the modern economy. So, you know, the biggest category of spending in this bill uh, at about $110 billion were roads, bridges and major projects, power infrastructure, passenger and freight rail, broadband or high-speed internet, water infrastructure, um, and, you know, in a number of other other categories. Um, and, you know, the things I just mentioned are all uh, the key categories of what's considered the new spending. So I just want to kind of make this, this caveat, which is the total size of the bill was $1.2 trillion. Some of that, in fact, a majority of it, $650 billion, were essentially reauthorizations of existing programs, and it was essentially just done all in one go. The big deal about this bill was that we added an additional $550 billion of new spending on these kinds of physical infrastructure categories that I just listed. Yeah, and this would be over a period of what time? Um, so the numbers I just cited are the investments over a 10-year period, which is a traditional window sure. um, that we look at when we talk about, you know, budgetary issues. Yeah. And these all things that, you know, you had just mentioned are really, you know, big deal for the commercial real estate industry as well, because, you know, roads and bridges and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the infrastructure is really important. Um, are there certain parts of the country that might be getting kind of a bigger chunk of this or... Uh, you know, certain geographies that, that might benefit more? How, how, does, how does it break up there? 
Sure. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, you know, when you when you look at infrastructure spending from the public sector, um, although a lot of it goes through federal policy in terms of funding, the states and local governments, you know, they're the ones that actually get the funds and deploy the funds. So in the data, you see it coming through state activity um, instead of instead of federal activity for the most part. And, you know, when you look at this bill and this new funding specifically, there are some states that win on a sort of nominal basis who gets the most dollars, you know, and, and probably not terribly surprising for, for the listeners here that this would include our biggest states, our most populous states, places like California, Texas, New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, you know, New Jersey, Ohio, Georgia, the, the list goes on. Um, what's interesting, though, is, you know, these are also where the most people live, and we tend to have a lot of use of that infrastructure. So when you think about who wins on a relative basis after you control for, say, the size of the population, yeah. you actually see a lot of smaller states start to pop on the top of the list. So, you know, number one would be Alaska. And you have your Wyoming, Montana, Vermont, the Dakotas, West Virginia. Um, and so, you know, it really does depend how you look at it. But I think the good news, generally speaking, would be that all states are technically winners since this is new funding that that didn't exist just prior to about six weeks ago. Um, and so that's good news for everyone. And the one standout that I would also highlight is on the public transportation side, you know, I sit and have bounced around the Northeast Mid-Atlantic corridors and just simply perhaps due to the density of the public transport infrastructure here, the train and, and sort of passenger rail networks, if from that perspective specifically, this area of the country is getting uh, a relatively greater share of that funding. Um, you know, and again, that could just be partly because of the maturity of that infrastructure and and that it's already in place. Well, and I would argue also because of its utility, right? I mean, it's a, it's a very used sort of mode of transportation and that corridor uh, right. um, is, is, you know, very important economically as well, correct? I mean, that's... Certainly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When what, so so you said this was uh, passed uh, just about six or so weeks ago. When does the industry? You know, when do we get to you know feel the benefits of this? And maybe we don't, as users, get to feel the benefits of it. But the industry, from you know construction development sort of side, uh, what's your estimate in terms of when this begins to flow? Yeah, I think what's interesting is. From an economic impact standpoint, this is going to take a little bit of time. Um, and part of the reason for that, as I mentioned earlier, is one, a lot of what happens initially is the federal government sends money to the states. So it looks like federal spending, but it's really going to state governments and local governments. And then it takes some time until it gets spent. And yeah. even at that, Given the nature of these projects, they tend the spending tends to go out in disbursements. So you sort of have to reach a certain milestone before you get your next tranche of funding, for example. So you know most of the impact is expected to be felt from 2025 to 2027 when you look at sort of peak spending, peak GDP impacts, and things like that. Do you have any sense of how many sort of shovel-ready projects might be already out there um, that, you know, will qualify for this funding and that might be, 
you know, uh, knocking on the doors of these, you know, regional and, you know, lo- local folks that uh, will be able to disperse the funds? You know, not honestly, not right off the top of my head. What What is interesting in the state-specific allocations is that there were a number of projects that were sort of on the radar or that were already sort of kicking off that that we know we're going to receive some of these funds. So they're certainly out there. Um, But of course, there are also new projects that will commence as a result of this. So I think it'll be interesting to to watch how that plays out. Yeah. Do you have any any um you know, you know maybe anecdotal sort of uh, you know examples or any kind of things that we might reference um and 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 it may not be specific at this point yet, but you know we know for instance that you know sometimes just the removal of a highway from a certain part of the city will increase, you know, property values in that area because it will sort of activate that region a little bit more, right? Whether it's for multifamily, whether it's for office, industrial kind of uses, right? Um, do, do you have a sense of sort of maybe in, in, you know, some areas where, you know, that activity and kind of how the industry is, you know, you know, looking at, at, at this stuff, because this is not just repairing stuff. I, I imagine it's probably, you know, either tearing stuff down, bringing new stuff elsewhere where it, it didn't exist. Um, a- any examples of, of how some of this might impact, um, you know, the industry? You know, from a construction perspective, this is, um, you know, I think you're, we have yet to sort of have a, a detailed understanding of, for example, the, the breakdown between what goes to existing projects, uh, what goes to just repairs that are not parts of existing projects, and then what goes to new, just net new infrastructure um, projects in general. I think, um, you know, one area where we know it will be a sort of net new gain is on that broadband side, you know, and if you kind of think about how underserved some of these more rural areas have been or ex-urban communities and bringing them into that high-speed internet 21st century economy. I mean, that comes with a lot of ancillary benefits. So kind of think about, okay, if if they also have a certain amount of uh, access to the financial sector, then you could be talking about an engagement of a new consumer base in a new way that didn't exist before. So um, you know, a lot of unknowns, but also a lot of exciting things to kind of think about in terms of potential as we sort of unleash some some new elements to our country. I would say one of which is, um, you know, on a net new basis, this expansion of broadband to what have historically just been underserved communities without access full access to that 21st modern uh 21st century modern economy. Yeah, yeah. As an economist, I'm sure you also track, you know, the impact this might have on employment as well. Are there any numbers in terms of, you know, whether it's construction jobs or service types of jobs that are kind of associated with this with this spending that would be added? Yeah, certainly, you know, on a um on an overall employment basis, uh, you know, we think that this will add essentially, uh, let's call it 500 to 600,000 extra payrolls over the next decade uh, beyond what would have occurred. Um, and, you know, most 
most upfront, the most significant direct impact will be on those, um, you know, first in line sectors such as construction, um, you know, transportation and warehousing and distribution, um, the sectors with which um, infrastructure is intimately connected. But, you know, again, part of the benefits of this are it raises total economic output, total income, and that also benefits all industries. So I think that's also exciting. Yeah. One of the sort of hallmarks, I guess, of the last maybe, I don't know, five, six years or so just across the industry has been, you know, a shortage of laborers in the in the construction in industry. Do we are, are you at all worried that there are enough people that will be there to cover these additional jobs? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a really good question, as I mentioned, and I think this gets a little bit back, you know, we have to remember the timing of when a lot of these um, impacts are going to be felt and the timing of when this really enters the economy, you know, more in force than, than you know, for example, next year or the year after that. Um, labor shortages, I think, are going to remain top of mind, quite frankly. Um, you know, our unemployment rate continues to decline. Our economy is going to grow, you know, probably around three and a half, four percent next year. Um, and one area where we haven't seen a full recovery is in labor force participation, especially in prime age workers. And, you know, they're one key element to helping to alleviate some of these shortages. Um, and so that's going to be something to watch. You know, that's something the Fed watches in addition to inflation. I would also point to international migration, which has really just, you know, gone off a cliff. And that's an important source of population and labor force growth, especially in some of our larger and, and coastal cities. So I think as those things somewhat, I don't want to say normalize, but as they recover, yeah. as we pass to the middle of the decade, we may see it become ever so slightly less acute. Um, but I do think just by the nature of where we are in our recovery, how low unemployment is already. And, you know, in November, we did see encouraging signs in participation, and we still continue to see this tightness. I do think it is going to be, um, you know, a, a sort of top of mind. It will remain a competitive labor market for years to come. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And then you you mentioned sort of the the big bad I word, um, inflation, mm -hmm. and you know how how does this impact that? Uh, does it impact it? I mean, you know, as as you and I talked about this, you know, earlier, this is not necessarily a stimulus, but it is stimulative for the industry for the economy. Um, is it is it going to impact uh, the inflation sort of rates at all? Right. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, um, you know, I certainly commiserate with many people who are watching inflation and concerned about it. And, you know, I think the important thing, there are kind of a few key things to keep in mind about this bill and, you know, how we think about its inflation impact. So let me give you the answer up front and walk you then through the logic behind it. The expectation of what this bill specifically does to inflation is essentially not much at all. Um, so we don't think the inflation pact is going to be significant, um, you know, baby basis points you know, on the percentage point, but you're really not talking about a significant influence. And there are a few reasons why. One is uh, some of the issues we're dealing with today, um, the consensus of economists would say this is cost push inflation. This is highly tied to, 
idiosyncratic things with energy and food and autos and supply chain issues that by middle of the decade, you know, we really should have worked through all, if not a majority of those challenges. Uh, you know, a minority of inflation is really being driven by that demand pool side. So, you know, with that as sort of a backdrop of where the the consensus really is at, it's also important to realize, you know, we're talking about $550 billion of additional spending over 10 years. So let's call it $55 billion per year, just even though that's not the, the path it will go, let's just sure, call it yeah. that for a minute. On a $23 trillion economy, that's, you know, you're talking about GDP being 0.1% higher, you know, 0.2% higher in a given year than it than it would have been. Um, and so this is just really simply not enough to move that macroeconomic needle to push that inflation, you know, really either from uh, a cost push or demand pool side. So, you know, not something to worry about. I, I I totally understand why people are worried about inflation and why it's top of mind today. But when it comes to this bill and worrying about inflation mid-decade, when it's really starting to trickle through our economy, just just not really something to put on your list of anxieties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Just from kind of working with your colleagues and you know the you know clients that you guys advise and folks you know throughout Cushman and Wakefield. Um, what's been, what has been sort of some of the, you know, feedback about this, you know, what is kind of the general feeling about this and maybe, um, you know, I don't know if there's any anecdotal evidence of kind of positive outlook for this, but sort of anything that you might be able to share kind of from your perspective, you know, from, from the industry. I have to say, you know, I'll start with kind of just the, the industry as a whole and then real estate and then reception that I've heard, you know, with clients and with our business. Um, first and foremost, there is widespread bipartisan support for this. That's, that's how it got passed in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, it's somewhat exciting as a non-engineer to know that the um, American Society of Civil Engineers is also very excited that this is getting done. They would argue if we don't do this, it's going to pull GDP out of the system. You know, so that's also something to kind of wrap your head around. But we have, you know, over 100 trade groups around the country have said, we endorse this, we support this, we think it's great, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the National Association of Home Builders, National Governors Association. And then you get into real estate and you've just seen endorsements and excitement across the board. So, you know, you look at the CRE Finance Council, the National Association of Multi, um, National Multifamily Housing Council, sorry, National Apartment Institute, the Mortgage Bankers Association, NAOP and BOMA. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And so, you know, I think you can decisively conclude that not only is this something our industry is excited about, but it really appears to be bipartisan in both industry and and in Congress. And, you know, certainly within our business, just seen a lot of excitement around it and what it means for real estate in general. Yeah, interesting. And then what about um, how this might get, you know, paid? You know, how how does the government sort of hope to, you know, raise the taxes to, you know, have these funds available? Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, um, well, I guess there's kind of a few answers to that. One is they, they don't intend to actually fully offset the cost of the new spending. So, 
Um, I mentioned, you know, out of this whole bill, there's $550 billion of new spending. And so when we look at that, we can pay for that a few different ways as a country. The first thing you can do is raise taxes. Um, the second thing you could do is keep taxes the same and maybe change the base around. You can also do what's called eliminating tax expenditures. So that's just fancy way of saying we spend through our tax code by giving tax breaks. We can reduce the size of those. Um, but what we can also do is reduce other forms of spending. And in budgetary lingo, what that does, it is actually pays for part of this bill. And that's exactly what Congress did in terms of raising um, some funds for this bill. So the, the largest source of sort of, quote, revenue for this bill, a little over $200 billion of it, in fact, is coming from unused COVID-19 pandemic relief funds. We also have, you know, an additional, let's call it just over $50 billion coming from unused federal unemployment insurance funding. Um, we also raise revenue through, through new ways. So, for example, there will be new requirements for cryptocurrency. We will auction off Spectrum, which is something that the government tends to do, but we'll now do it um, as, and use those funds to offset the cost of this bill. Um, the, the, the GSEs, so your Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are going to just slightly increase the guarantee fee that they charge um, on securitizing mortgages. So all of those kinds of things add up to offset the cost of the bill, but not fully. So that's kind of where we get into the fact that this will impact the deficit. Um, it does, therefore, have a stimulative effect on our GDP. It raises the level of GDP um, because we're not fully removing as much funding from the economy to fully pay for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Rebecca, I think this is, um, you know, I know that the industry has done relatively well over the last 24 months or so, especially certain mm -hmm. sectors of the industry. And I think it's very encouraging to hear that uh, there's already, you know, wheels are in motion for sort of continuous assistance, I think, throughout the middle of the decade, which, you know, um, you know, certainly will, will, will help perhaps at the right time, right? So thank you so much for giving yeah. us this, um, this overview. This was uh, very helpful and very informative. Uh, uh, happy holidays and safe travels uh, to your family over, over the next couple of weeks. Oh, thank you so much. And, and likewise, uh, happy holidays. And I hope you have a safe and wonderful holiday season. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.